Alright, welcome back everybody. Uh, once again, we're going to try to do things a little differently from how uh, things are typically done in an episode of this. For this particular episode of Real Deep Dive, we are going to be covering two films instead of one. That's an idea I've been kicking around for a little bit ever since I started the show, just taking a two different film adaptations of a single source and comparing and contrasting them, both in terms of what they cover and how the various time periods that they come from interpret the source material. For this episode, we are covering uh, Much Ado About Nothing, the uh, acclaimed Shakespeare comedy. Uh, the two films that we will be putting this under are the uh, 1993 Kenneth Branagh production and the 2012-2013 Joss Whedon version. Now, the idea of this is just mostly keep things to an analytical perspective. I'm not super interested in picking a clear-cut winner, although in this instance, my co-host and I have a different personal idea of which film is better. We'll, we'll be getting into that when we get into it. Uh, I'm like Donkey Kong. Yeah, it's on like Donkey <laughs> Kong. This is going to be a war. I'm on this show, so you know it's going to be opinion world with me. <laughs> All right, my name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. And I'm Rachel, the uh, unofficial co-host of the show, because this is, what, my fifth appearance? You released the episodes out of order, but this will be my fifth time recording one. Right, and uh, <laughs> I don't exactly have a huge swell of people to choose from, being that we're currently under coronavirus quarantine, but you live in the same apartment as me, so you're going to show up on a lot of these. Yeah, the cats don't really make the best interview subjects. All right. That being said, <laughs> one of the reasons that I wanted you for this particular episode is that you are involved in a um, Shakespeare in the Park type of production crew, and you performed in a version of Much Ado About Nothing. You were Baraccio. Yeah, I was Baraccio, um, the drunk. Basically, and that's what his name means, the drunk. And it was a pretty cool production. Um, it was a stage reading to keep it simple because people didn't have a lot of time to uh, rehearse for this. You know, my costume was just, you know, black shirt, black pants. I had some, you know, eye makeup. My character was, you know, clearly a man, um, even though I don't know, nobody really cared that a bunch of characters were played by, you know, women or female presenting or feminine presenting people. And I really enjoyed it. It's my favorite Shakespeare comedy, and Beatrice is my dream role, even though I will settle for being the drunk asshole who, you know, ruins everyone's, you know, nice weekend in Messina, right? <laughs> I, I, I did find that your hammered confession sequence was very true to how you are when you're genuinely drunk. Yeah, I know. I just was like, I'm going to go for it. going to go for it. Lots of arm waving and... Drunk and screaming. Yeah, your, your, your gesticulations <laughs> were on point. Oh, oh yeah, well, acting. <laughs> yeah, and uh, one thing that I wanted just to, you know, briefly bring up for uh, the production, which we know we're going to talk about in more detail later, is just the character of Claudio. In the production that I was in, they cast this Thor-looking guy as Hero. So in this production... Hero and Claudio are a same-sex couple. And I thought that was a nice touch. It did kind of, you know, we it had to trim out some of, you know, Claudio's fuckboyness. But it still was very interesting to have this very, you know, dainty character played by this big burly man who unfortunately did have to drop out due to a health issue and the director had to step in and play Hero. But it still was that, you know, it was two guys, which I thought was a nice reinterpretation of the relationship. Yeah, we will be talking about how Claudio just radically shifts between simp and fuckboy throughout the uh, course of the plot of the play. And uh, I also want to touch upon how radical reinterpretations of Shakespeare's material is sometimes opposed by purists and the inherent silliness of that. Yeah, I mean, but we can all agree that Claudio is the worst! <laughs> the worst in this play. There are, there are, there are other worst. Uh, yeah. But yeah, before we dive into the plot, I wanted to give some background details of the play itself. Mm -hmm. It was uh, written sometime between 1598 and 1600. This was an especially fertile period for the Bard. It was premiered in 1600. This is also when it was first published. Uh, it was included in uh, 1623's first folio. And getting back already to uh, the idea of Shakespeare purism, most Shakespeare plays, which if you have some historical knowledge, are not true to the original 
original text of it because for most instances, the original text is unknown. A lot of Shakespeare's plays were put together after the fact, several decades after the Bard's death by, you know, collaborators, actors, fellow writers, and someone who were trying to, like, put down a written record of it for posterity, but were basically playing upon what they thought. Now, Much Ado About Nothing is unique in that the 1623 first folio edition is pretty close to what we can find from the initial published version of 1600. This is about as close to the original version of the play as any of Shakespeare's materials. And most adaptions for any Shakespeare play do have to make cuts. The um, Much Ado About Nothing production I was in was only supposed to run for two hours, like on the dot. And we think we trimmed it down to an hour 45, I think. Much Ado About Nothing has cuts in both the film versions, and I will be talking about which uh, which bits were trimmed out of each version and why I think they were, just some wild speculation. But yeah, even this one, which is light and fluffy, it's not like Richard III, where, you know, a, a typical version, if you do every bit, is, what, four hours long? Yeah, Hamlet is the longest, but Richard III is really long, and it has loads and loads of characters. Not only that, but it, you know, ties into prior plays and works with the assumption that you are familiar with the plots of those prior <laughs> plays. Yes, I know. I mean, Richard III is one of my favorite. I guess my favorite history play. No, it's not quite. A, it is a tragedy, but. We can debate genre some other time. <laughs> but yeah, before I dive into the plot, uh, before we go any further, uh, what is your favorite Shakespeare play? That's an important question, I think. Okay, well, I, like, Much Ado About Nothing is my favorite comedy. Like, when I was a kid, I had a book of, like, children's Shakespeare adaptions. And being a bookworm, I devoured it over and over again. I will say that probably my favorite tragedy is Coriolanus, which is kind of an obscure play. It did get a lot of hype because um, back in 2015, uh, Tom Hiddleston was in a Donmar Warehouse production where he played um, Martis, also known as you know Coriolanus, when he takes over the city. And I got to see it, and I waited 26 hours in line, two separate occasions, to get tickets for it. So that was an amazing experience. But I also really like Richard III because it's interesting. And for a while, I had Richard's uh, monologue from the opening memorized. I'm I'm very fond of A Midsummer Night's Dream. I doubt that will surprise anybody. I'm a, I'm a big old nerd who has no. an interesting relationship <laughs> with body glitter. Anyways, the plot for this one. Yes, anyway. <laughs> All right, this one takes place in Messina. And uh, it opens with it being announced to uh, Governor Leonato that Don Pedro is returning from a successful uh, military endeavor with Claudio and Benedict. Beatrice, she's the niece of Leonato, sarcastically makes remarks about how ben- about Benedict's uh, military incompetence. It is then commented there that there is a merry battle of wits, scare quotes between them. <laughs> yeah, Leonato then welcomes Don Pedro and invites him to stay on his compound for a month. Uh, Benedict and Beatrice immediately start trading snark as Don John, Don Pedro's illegitimate brother, is introduced. Claudio's feelings for Hero, who he had, you know, gotten some uh, fondness for her before he went off to war, is immediately rekindled once he uh, sees her again. Benedict loudly opposes the idea of Claudio marrying Hero or anyone. He is very opposed to marriage. Uh, The (laughs) implication is that he has been burned in the past, at least to me. I think it just kind of depends on how you choose to play the character. I Maybe in the Whedon version, you can kind of say that he's more burned in the past. But I think that in the Brana version, Beatrice and Benedict, they love the fact that they're like, we're better than everybody else because we, we scorn marriage. We're not like other people. Whenever I read the play or see most of the versions, uh, whenever Beatrice and Benedict are talking loudly about how they are scornful of the concept of matrimony, in, in, in the back of my head, I think they're screaming, I'm so lonely, someone please love me. <laughs> I'm going to argue no, because Beatrice does turn down a marriage proposal, whether half-heartedly given or not, by Don Pedro. And we can talk more about how that scene is interpreted because the Brahma one is one of the few uh, adaptions that I've seen where they treat the, you know, half-assed marriage proposal as like a poignant moment. Like even the production I was in, they made it into like a joke. 
Yeah, it is treated as a joke in the Whedon version, but yeah, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Well, Anyways, <laughs> Don Pedro offers to woo Hero on Claudio's behalf at a masquerade ball. He's going to put on a little mask and pretend to be Claudio and then just sort of win Hero over and then, you know, hand her off to Claudio at the end of it. Which, if you if you have a cursory amount of familiarity with uh, Shakespeare, you know that mistaken identity is not a good path for these characters to go through. Everyone loves disguises! <laughs> Anyways, at the ball, Don John, who is a plain-dealing villain, as he describes himself, this isn't one of those situations where, you know, Richard III is defined by his ambition and Iago is very jealous. Don John has no motivation besides just general mischievousness and fuckery. Yeah, and he doesn't even come up with the nefarious plot. That is yours truly, Baracchio. Uh, yeah, uh, he initially seeks revenge simply by uh, approaching Claudio, uh, pretending to mistake him as Benedict with a mask on, and then telling him that Don Pedro was wooing Hero on his own behalf rather than Claudio's. Meanwhile, uh, Beatrice is sharing a dance with a disguised Benedict and just begins just gravely insulting his character, which offends Benedict quite a bit. I, I wonder. I wonder if she kind of knew it was him, at least in the um, the Brana version. She's just like, yeah, I make fun of him, da, da, da. but then maybe she doesn't because she does make that one comment about how she wishes that he boarded her. Sex joke and Take two drinks. Settle down, Beavis. <laughs> uh, yeah, I. I, I agree with you. In the, in the Brana version, it kind of implied that Beatrice knows that it's Benedict with the mask on. In the Whedon version, I think it's a little more ambiguous. He just likes to him. I respect that. <laughs> Anyways, a furious Claudio confronts Don Pedro, but the matter is quickly resolved, and this is the first implication of uh, Claudio just having a very fragile sense of personal insecurity and just being a, being a fuckboy. He's... Stupid, and he's a dick. Yeah, yeah, the play needs him to be a stupid dick. Oh, yeah. Anyways, uh, after that settled, Don Pedro, he's looking to kill time before Hero and Claudio's wedding. After being gently or laughingly turned down by Beatrice, uh, as we mentioned before, he sort of hits on her a little bit and it doesn't quite go that way. Uh, anyways, he decides to manipulate Beatrice and Benedict into falling for each other. Also at the party, Beatrice implies that she and Benedict have a past and that it didn't end well. Uh, this is purely in dialogue in the uh, Brana version, but in the Whedon one, it is overtly stated through the film. Uh, the, the Whedon film opens with Beatrice and Benedict sort of parting it from the bedroom together with this big pregnant ugly pause between them. He doesn't stay for breakfast. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> during um, Beatrice's I Lent Him My Heart for a while, a uh, little bit of soliloquy, the Whedon film just has a visual montage of them just swilling booze and making out. Uh, w one thing that I like about the Whedon version is that it, every character in it is just kind of drunk at, at any given moment, which totally tracks for the dialogue. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I heard that on the set. It wasn't always pretend alcohol either. <laughs> I believe that, especially uh, considering the rigors of the working schedule, which we will also be getting back to. With the help of uh, Leonardo Hero and various servants, Don Pedro arranges for Benedict and Beatrice to overhear, scare quotes, conversations about how the other is madly in love with them, but too prideful to admit it. This is arguably the uh, most iconic sequence in the play as a whole, and most productions tend to have a lot of fun with these sequences. Oh yeah, um, even in the production I was in where we had, we were like in a room, we did not have a set. Our Benedict was this very tall, very large man, and he tried to hide behind the skinniest, narrowest lamp, and it was just very funny. So yeah, there's these sequences where, you know, Benedict is just wandering around in the background and the other male characters are in front, very pointedly talking about how Beatrice is just crazy about him, but she has to act like she doesn't like him because she's just mad with insecurity and he's trying to listen in and is doing a very bad job of hiding while he's doing this. <laughs> I like the part where he's like, well, where um, John Pedro is like, he has a contemptible spirit and he's like, hi! <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and the Brana film, 
um, he tries to disguise this by, like, pretending to be a bird. It's very cute. Yeah, I like Ball. He breaks his chair. Obviously, the, the same thing is staged with Beatrice in reverse in the, in the Whedon film. It, it turns into slapstick comedy. She's bumping her head on the counter and falling down the stairs. And, <laughs> that part was pretty funny. Yeah, very, very, very Buster Keaton-ish. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I will be going into that uh, into, into more detail when we're contrasting iconic scenes of the play and how the film interprets each of them. This uh, subterfuge tricks both Beatrice and Benedict, despite them, you know, being constantly uh, informed of being uh, the height of wit. <laughs> and uh, this uh, rekindles the ebbing embers of their passion. I think that they always loved each other, but they were just always too stubborn or just enjoyed the combat part of it and were too prideful and just, you know, having it said right to their faces that the other one loves the other, maybe you two should just act on it and they're like oh all right yeah i I will be talking about this in further detail when we get to the thematic undercurrents but every romantic comedy where where the two people just seem to hate each other and everyone in the audience is like oh just fuck already that's (laughs) basically comes from this oh yeah don john motivated to sabotage the wedding despite his failure and his half-assed scheme beforehand decides to inform claudio that hero is unfaithful he arranges for Don Pedro and Claudio to witness his henchman Baracchio uh, entering Hero's bedchamber for an amorous liaison. Now, this hookup is actually with Hero's maid Margaret, but Don Pedro and Claudio are both bamboozled by the subterfuge. They then resolve to publicly humiliate Hero on her wedding day because not only is Claudio a fuckboy, but he's a drama queen. Yeah, and shame on Don Pedro for going along with it. <laughs> Now, Baracchio, immediately after this, brags to his uh, compatriot Conrad about his role in the deception. This is overheard by uh, Leonato's Night Watch. However, <laughs> yeah, however, since the Night Watch is led by the incompetent Constable Dogberry, Leonardo is initially dismissive of the Watch's first report of the apprehension. He doesn't make the connection, even after the wedding. And during the wedding, Claudio makes a big show of denouncing Hero. Just physically grabs her and throws her back at Leonardo like a... Like a Take this rotten orange! <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's... He, he, fucking simp. <laughs> <laughs> he is a simp. He's such a douche. He and Don Pedro storm off as Hero faints. A humiliated Leonato then exclaims that Hero deserves to die for her sluttiness. But uh, Beatrice protests her innocence because they had shared a room for a whole year beforehand, and it was implied that this was hardly the first midnight liaison, so Beatrice immediately smells a rat. The presiding friar suggests that Hero fake her death in order to extract the, the truth out of the situation and also to make Claudio feel guilty. And also, if you have even a bit of a cursory knowledge of Shakespeare, you know that the friar encouraging people to fake their death doesn't usually work out. Friar Francis does a better job than Friar Lawrence. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, going back to the well. I mean, I suppose it has to work at least once. <laughs> well, it's a comedy. One would say that this horrible spectacle is not exactly conducive to people wanting to just mack on each other, but despite that, Benedict and Beatrice confess their love for each other almost immediately after this wedding spectacle. Although there is a bit of reluctance there, they have to drag it out of each other. He's like, immediately. He, like, goes see it. And the funny thing is that for Benedict, for all of his, like, loathing of, supposed loathing of women and matrimony, he's the only man who actually, who goes, let's take a moment to actually think about this. And he, one of the things he says, this looks not like nuptials. (laughs) And... You know, he actually just take the moment, try to calm everybody down, and he immediately knows that it's, you know, Don John, the bastard, who's done this, and just go to, like, genuinely try to comfort Beatrice, and then his just love for her just kind of comes out. Well, I mean, in the Brana film, it's right after, like, he and Beatrice run off to a separate room. In the Whedon film, it, it is kind of implied that some time had passed between the two scenes. And again, it just kind of depends on how everything is staged, because Shakespeare is really just a text. It has to be performed to be appreciated. After this dragged-out confession, Beatrice complicates things by insisting that if Benedict truly loved her, he should uh, challenge Claudio to a death duel. 
for, you know, unfairly slandering her uh, cousin. Now, Benedict is extremely reluctant, but he follows through after Leonardo and his brother Antonio confront Don Pedro and Claudio. I don't think Antonio is in the Whedon film at all. He's, he's, he's in the Brana film. Yeah, we have, you know, it's an excuse to have Brian Blessed show up, say his dialogue really loudly. <laughs> yeah, he's just this big dude with this huge diaphragm, and his voice sounds exactly what you think a guy like that looks like. Yeah, in um, the production I was in, because most of the people on it were women, um, they changed it to Antonia, so... Despite the extreme ineptitude of Dogberry and his subordinates, they are able to extract a confession from, uh, from Baracchio. Now, uh, Don John has since fled Messina, but Don Pedro and Claudio are both incredibly remorseful upon hearing evidence of Hero's innocence. Now, Leonardo demands Claudio to publicly exonerate Hero and then marry Beatrice in a way of continuing the family line. No, 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 not Beatrice. He says, you will marry my niece, who is a copy of my child who is gone. He never wanted him to marry Beatrice. He wanted him to marry this other niece. See, my I, sister's child. Like my other relative's child. I always assumed he was referring to Beatrice when he said my niece. Nope, 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 nope. Because <laughs> it was a copy, almost a copy of my child who is gone. You're, you're talking to the English major who took every single Shakespeare class she could get her hands on. So I'm using this English degree, motherfucker. <laughs> 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 At this next wedding, <laughs> the bride is revealed to be a still-living hero, which uh, overjoys Claudio, and Hero then reaffirms the fact that she is a virgin to Claudio because this is 1599, that matters a great deal. Mm-hmm. Now, Beatrice and Benedict are now, again, reluctant to admit that they are just intensely in love with each other, but they are prompted by their friends who reveal their embarrassing love poetry to each other <laughs> to, to admit it and pledge their love for each other and eventually get married. Then it is announced that Don John was captured. We'll deal with him tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> Well, in the Brana film, they they drag out Don John again, so everyone just scowl at him. Well, it's also everyone, everyone wants to stare at the Keanu. I mean, I, I, I'll go into what I think of him at, at, in that movie as a professed Keanu fan, so... <laughs> The final line in the film is Benedict informing a lonely Don Pedro to get thee a wife. And that is the play. <laughs> yep, that, that's the play. <laughs> Now, like just about every Shakespeare play, this did not come purely from the bard's imagination. There uh, are ripped it off from everything. <laughs> yeah, this one doesn't have uh, quite as much borrowing scare quotes, but uh, there are a couple of sources. Uh, it is possibly derived by a novel from uh, Matteo Bendello. Uh, this is the whole "I'm going to trick this guy into watching someone mess around in a night chamber window and convince him that it's his fiance." Uh, this is apparently a very common trope in a Italian literature in the uh, late 16th century. I am sorry to every Italian person who had to hear that. These plot points also share parallels with Orlando Furioso. Uh, besides that, the whole Beatrice Benedict thing, as far as most historians and academics can concern, is largely invented by Shakespeare himself, which for the most part is the most compelling aspect of the play. Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah uh, Claudio and Hero are both eminently disposable. The focal points are Beatrice and Benedict. Yeah, um, if you watch any production of Much Ado About Nothing, Hero is mostly a prop. She barely has any dialogue. She just sort of says, I will do whatever to give my cousin to a husband or something. Like she's, it's very minimal. And this is reflected in both film versions, where they just bring on somebody who has the least amount of acting experience of anyone in either movie. Now, the first thing that most academics bring up when discussing the film's thematic motifs is the uh, undercurrent of challenging gender roles, which this play was written in 1600, so it is very much written in an environment where women were considered uh, subservient uh, figures to men and that they existed purely to prop up their husband and enhance his greatness. But still, even in that context, there's a great number of elements of this film that challenge the expectations of uh, how a woman is supposed to compose herself to her lover or husband. Husband. I'm going to say, oh God, if I were a man, I would eat his heart in the marketplace. 
most badass line in, uh, well, a lot of Shakespeare plays. <laughs> Beatrice's. Yeah, most criticisms uh, going around the play uh, sort of delve into how, like, e even then there were aspects of women challenging the gender roles of how a wife is expected to perform, and that Shakespeare is acknowledging that through the lens of comedy, which comedy has always been a uh, great lens to frame things that make us feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. The standard of uh, Aristotle, he always uh, claimed that the purpose of comedy was to ridicule and attack, which, I mean, that is definitely an aspect of it. However, a lot of people um, have pointed out that comedy is a lens to view things that make us feel uncomfortable and to laugh at our insecurities and, and our mortality and the things that frighten us and sadden us and make us feel uncomfortable, which I would say is an expansion of the Aristotle and also nihilistic edge lord, I'm just fucking around, can't you take a joke type of comedy. Sounds like something Claudio would enjoy. <laughs> yeah, Claudio, you Aristotle fuckboy. I know. I know we're going to talk about it more later, but um, there was an, I haven't actually seen it myself, but there was a BBC series called Shakespeare Retold, and in their Much Do About Nothing episode, Hero does not take Claudio back at the end. She really shouldn't. He basically demonstrated that the tiniest bit of a fly being tossed in his ointment is enough for him to just toss his cookies and just, just renounce everything. He is very inconstant. Yeah, at least in the Brana version, most of his really disturbing dialogue is cut out. You have, what is it, Sean Robert, oh god, I forget the actor's name, Wilson. Robert Sean Lennon. Yeah, Robert Sean Lennon, who has a, a baby face, and he just acts like a dumb kick puppy every time anything doesn't go his way and at least at the end when he's you know apologizing to his you know future veiled wife he's very very contrite contrast us to the Whedon one where he is as you said earlier a weasel <laughs> he's just pretty entitled throughout the whole thing mm-hmm before we go on to it, uh, we should probably talk about Beatrice in more detail because she's... The best. <laughs> yeah, she is among the most rich of Shakespeare's heroines. She is very frequently compared to Rosalind in As You Like It. Mm -hmm. I do think that there are obvious parallels. Uh, Rosalind runs off into the woods to both restore her honor and find some sort of agency, mostly acting the, through the mercy and benefit of outside people with power who take favor upon her, because, you know, she is a woman in the Renaissance, and there's only so much she can do on her own, which is frustrating, which Beatrice expresses very eloquently in her If I Were a Man monologue. Oh, yeah, and I... In case you haven't figured it out, I'm on, you know, Team Brana is the best version. And I like it because Emma Thompson is just so damn good as Beatrice. Like, the part where she says that, you know, if I were a man, where, you know, she says it's a man's office. And when she just very coldly looks Benedict in the eyes, like, and she's like, you know, like, do anything for love. loves. Like, bid me do anything. And she just looks at him and says, kill Claudio. And, you know, if she... Honestly, she's like about one to two steps from just getting a knife and going out there and doing it herself. But she, you know, must work within the constraints of her society. I do think that Beatrice is the face that launched a thousand romantic comedy uh, protagonists. Uh, most people, when they talk about the literary roots of uh, the modern romantic comedy, they tend to talk about Jane Austen, uh, particularly Pride and Prejudice. And they're definitely right in saying that. However, I do think that a lot of Elizabeth Bennet is based on Beatrice. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. But I, I would definitely think that Mr. Darcy is very not like Benedict as all, at all, though. <laughs> yeah, I don't know for sure that Jane Austen based Elizabeth Bennet on Beatrice. That being said, you know, I'm sure Austin was familiar with the works of Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. Bits and pieces of it are evident in all her work. I don't think I'm making a radical statement there. Mm, nope. <laughs> Not at all. We're a half hour into this, so uh, why don't we start actually talking about the films themselves? All right, yeah, let's do it. Like, you know what, the recap, you want to make sure everyone knows what's going on in the story. Okay. 
Yeah, I, it's a little weird because up until now, we've just been talking about it as a piece of literature, and you know, we've been threading in bits about the films. But this all right, is a movie podcast. This is a movie podcast. We are allegedly talking about movies here. All right, let's let's do it. All right, the first movie version that anyone can find is a 1913 silent film. Does this still exist? I know that pieces of it exist. I saw them on YouTube. I don't know for sure if the whole thing exists. As we've talked about before, 80% of films produced before 1928 are completely lost. It's tragic, but until then, films are largely considered disposable. They weren't seen as art, capital A art, and there wasn't much movement towards preserving them. Weirdly enough, the 1993 Kenneth Branagh film is the first known sound film in English, which I mean, there must have been, like, a TV movie or, like, a film stage version beforehand. Oh, but probably. in terms of, yeah, theatrically released films, this is the first one, which I'm I'm still a bit surprised by. Yeah, me too, because I feel like this is such a rich story to adapt in all the different ways. Kenneth Branagh, he's, um, I would say he's the modern day's most notorious cinematic ham. He, oh, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's just, his Hamlet version alone, William Shatner would tell him to take it down a notch. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and he, he didn't just do Hamlet. He did Hamlet. He did the whole goddamn play. <laughs> it's like four hours long. It's a great movie, but you really gotta, like, settle in to be there for the whole thing. <laughs> Chewing scenery left and right. And his version was, it, it was a very middle-brow version. He was very um, adamant about this one being accessible to people who aren't typically into Shakespeare. The most prominent use of this, which uh, Emma Thompson mentions on the DVD commentary, is that he brought in American actors and encouraged them to perform the lines in their natural accent, which, for the Shakespeare purist, is considered a big no-no. That's stupid. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> well, I yeah. people still freak out about that. Uh, it, is, it is a little odd because we see all these, like, way off the beaten path Shakespeare adaptations, uh, not only in film with, you know, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood and Ran, or, you know, Forbidden Planet or West Side Story that just take it off into these weird new directions. But there are so many weird off-brand Shakespeare productions. People often joke that at any given moment, some theatrical director is staging a version of King Lear that is exclusively barking dogs. <laughs> I, mean, I was in a production of King Lear that took place in the 80s. I had a windbreaker for a costume. <laughs> Fairly recently, the Globe Theater, the reconstructed Globe Theater, it's obviously not the original, had staged versions of Shakespeare plays where they aren't doing the traditional affected Shakespeare accent. And a lot of people lost it over that. They, they thought it was a desecration of the Bard's purity. I mean, I have to, you know, brag, but I, I have been to the Globe Recreation and Stratford-on-Avon, uh, but I saw a production of Much Ado About Nothing at the Globe, and it was, like, from a traveling show, and they only had six actors playing all of the characters. So pretty much everyone was double cast. And in probably the most memorable instance of double casting, Dogberry the Clown, and Don John were played by the same actor. Yeah, they, they never share a scene. You can yeah. totally do that. Yeah, and he was like this bald guy, and he was like, it must be said that I am a plain-dealing villain to playing Dogberry, and he gave him the most ridiculous Scottish accent ever, and he was just like running and dancing all over the stage so it, it was very easy to see them as two separate people even though you're like your brain your monkey brain is like Haha, same person yeah the brana film is a pretty traditional uh movie it was made in wine country with a full cast and crew and there are big sweeping crane shots and he uses lots of dissolves and all this other stuff it's so pretty <laughs> by contrast the joss whedon film is Almost an act of guerrilla filmmaking. It was shot in his house during a uh, two-week gap in the production of The Avengers. He basically had this time where he was just, he didn't have anything else to do. And he was like, you know what, I'm going to just quickly shoot a Shakespeare movie. Because apparently, like, he and his various, like, artsy acting buddies would occasionally, at parties, pass around a bunch of Dover Thrift editions and just read Shakespeare to each other after oh, a couple of drinks. That sounds so fun. Yeah, I know. I I inhabit a nerd circle where, like, all of my friends would totally be into doing that. We need to do it once the quarantine's over. We gotta pick a play and cast everyone. <laughs> 
that being said, we have to find a bunch of people in their 20s and 30s who all have the same night off, which that would be daunting. Well, you know, why don't we just plan it now? You know, three months ahead in the future, everyone can get the same night off. <laughs> all right. No more tangents. Yeah. <laughs> This is made in black and white on the cheap. During an interview on Stephen Colbert, Whedon bragged about how the fact that they had 7-Eleven coffee on set because they couldn't afford Dunkin' Donuts. This is how inexpensively this is made. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and he had just bought the house with his wife, and I think they had to sell the place after it was revealed that Joss Whedon had been continually cheating on her and gaslighting her about it the whole time. Yeah, this is the part where I say that I don't actually like anything that I've seen by Joss Whedon. I did not like Firefly. I could not, I, I, I'm pretty sure that if I had watched Buffy when it was out as like a small child, it would have blown my mind. But so many things about it have not aged well at all. And I didn't, I hated Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. And... Yeah, I just don't like him. He looks like a thumb and he doesn't know how to treat women correctly. <laughs> I have mixed feelings about Joss Whedon. I, I couldn't get into Buffy or Angel or Dollhouse or any of that. I'm not a huge TV guy. I'm more of a movie nerd. I uh, I like coming out of a 90 to 120 minute production with a high as opposed to watching a TV show and just getting enough entertainment value to bring me back next week to watch the next episode. That just feels like torture to me. That being said... Yeah. <laughs> My girlfriend's a big Firefly person. She made me watch the first season and Serenity, and I thought it was all right. I didn't hate it. Yeah, I feel like that's almost the worst thing that you can say about anything. It's just that it was okay. It didn't, you know, inspire any real feelings. It didn't inspire hate or, you know, amusement. It just was... I think the main point of doing a movie-by-movie movie comparison of the same story is just to compare how each set of actors approached the uh, material and the differences mm -hmm. between them. You already believe that Emma Thompson uh, wins the Beatrice standoff on oh, this. yeah. Um, Emma Thompson is the perfect Beatrice. She's fiery. She's still compassionate. You know, she doesn't take any shit. And, and I think that, you know, she really, you know, she loves... Benedict. I'm pretty sure she would have been content to spend the rest of her life as a monster. And, and she was just radiant in the film. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. And what's even nuttier is that, like, when they were filming it, that was when, like, her marriage with Bravo was really falling apart and she was still able to act like she was in love with this guy. <laughs> I was going to mention that if you didn't. In the, uh, in the commentary for it, uh, Emma Thompson mentions that how lo lovely it is to be on set and to have a glass of wine in the hot weather and just read this passionate dialogue while you're sweating over it and how much fun she was having. And it was like, wow, she is just making love to this man that she is married to and it must not be going so well. And God, that must be awkward. Yeah. I mean, at least we do... Oh, their divorce, the wonderful adaption of Sense and Sensibility, but we're not talking about that today. Yeah, I mean, uh, who played her in the Whedon version again? Amy uh, Acker? Her, her name is Amy Acker, and I think she's very good in this. I think she's okay. Yeah. I think her reading of uh, If I Were a Man, which it's perfectly cromulent, uh, to use the <laughs> Simpsons term, I enjoyed it. I mean, this is something that I'm going to keep going back to with the actors over and over again, but with... <laughs> With the Braunau version, most of them are acting their hearts out at various levels. In the Whedon version, there's a sort of detached, ironic reading of it, because it, it takes place in the modern day with people wearing modern clothes, and it's filmed in black and white, so there's a degree of artifice to it. And I do think that occasionally the actors are sort of winking as they're uh, re reading their dialogue, which I got into it, but I can understand how others would be off-put by it. It was a bad adaption. I and I, I went to my local art house theater to see it because holy shit, it's my favorite comedy. Much do about nothing. But you know, as somebody who's been in Shakespeare plays, watched a ton of them, read the plays, written about it, da, 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 have an English degree. Shakespeare's supposed to be performed, not spoken. So when all the actors in the Brana version really go fucking ham wild, that's good. That's how it's supposed to be. 
That's my opinion, though. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that the Joss Whedon version is mumblecore. It's it, it's far from that. But oh, there, I agree. There is a degree of irony in that, where that isn't in the uh, Full Throttle Brana version. And speaking of Brana and Full Throttle, let's get back to Kenneth Brana and his hamminess. Oh my god, he doesn't just chew the scenery, he rips it apart and eats it. Yeah, he just, he just luxuriates over every syllable as he's announcing it out loud. And poor Alexis Denisoff, he is not the overactor that Brana is. And out of everyone who gives an ironic line reading in the, in the Whedon version, I would say Denisoff's is the most ironic in linking. I will say that out of the entire cast in the Whedon version, I think that Desnioff did a very good job as... Benedict. He's still not the only one I'm going to give it to. I will give the better casting choice to one of the leading actors, but it's not not him. But I think I liked him better in the role of Benedict than I liked Acker as Beatrice. Now we're going to get to something where we're going to sternly disagree on. Don <laughs> John. <laughs> no, I... <laughs> I fucking hate Keanu Reeves in this. <laughs> you know what? I, I do too. Like, honestly... I am in the party that Keanu Reeves is a good actor when he is cast correctly, which I know is something that you can say about anything, but he was just put in this movie, in the Brana version, as eye candy. He's in it because he's a sexy man. He's got a tan, he's oiled up, getting rubbed down and shirtless. He gets the only like real shirtless scene in the movie. Brana put that there. For all of us Keanu fans. I mean, he's doing his best. He's trying to do that <laughs> uh, Shakespeare acting, but hes that's not what Reeves is suited for. No. He's, he's a physical actor who gives just stone-faced, straight-laced dialogue, you know. His best performances are in Speed, John Wick, The First Matrix, where he moves around and he grunts and he gets knocked down and gets up again. And he does a bit of that while he's getting rubbed down and announcing his evil scheme. <laughs> I, I laughed out loud as he, like, dramatically arose to... Fuck uh, you! What's up? And he kind of does sound like a teeny bit... You can hear a little bit of Ted in there when he talks. He's like, come on, let's go back to the party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny, but I don't think it's funny on purpose. No, no. I mean, uh, he's better in this than he is in what I think is his worst movie. I mean, thank God that Kenneth Branagh let his American actors speak with their natural accent, because I don't think I could stand Keanu Reeves trying to do a British accent in that one. (laughs) By contrast, uh, Sean Mayer, I think he's a fantastic Don John. Oh yeah, I think he's he's pretty good. I I guess I'll give it to him tonight. I guess two for Whedon. Yay, wave my little flag. I like that in both Much Ado About Nothings, Don John's a pretty boy. It's Sean Mayer's very pretty. Oh yes. Yes, he is. Now, getting back to Don Pedro, which is a a fairly minor supporting character in this, comparing uh, Reed Diamond to Denzel Washington. I think Denzel Washington is fantastic. Oh, you do about yeah. nothing. And it was his first role after Malcolm X, where he probably could have gotten to pick anything he wanted to, and he oh. and he did this. And uh, yeah, getting back to that scene where Don Pedro half-jokingly proposes marriage to Beatrice. He's just sort of like, hey, I'm I'm just playing with you, unless you're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Like, my lord's too expensive to wear every day. Reed Diamond does that in that jokey, winking, ironic, kind of drunk, detached way. Denzel Washington plays it more straight, and I think that forces Emma Thompson to be a little more gentle in her, her rebuke, not only... Mm-hmm. You know, being playful about it, but also Denzel Washington is a very handsome man. Oh, and yeah. in 1993, Denzel Washington, especially, yeah. I probably would have a hard time turning that down. I know, right? Same. I, I think that it's a good casting choice. I'm glad that he was just like, yeah, fuck it. We're going to have Denzel Washington in this. We're not going to care that he's black and then his half brother is Keanu. So we're just, you know, fuck it. He's in it. He's great. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, getting to the more minor characters, uh, Hero, uh, as we said before, in both instances, it was actresses without much experience. Baby Kate Beckinsale is Hero in the Kenneth Branagh version, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to um, Jillian uh, Morgese. Morgese, I, I don't know how to I pronounce that. I have never that. seen her in anything else. Yeah, me neither. She's fine. She she has a nice smile. That's basically all that, yeah. all, all, all that Hero is asking of either of them. 
I don't think you can tell right off that, you know, Kate Beckinsale is going to be a big deal a couple of years down the road because mm-hmm. of her performance in this. It's kind of like how uh, Christian Bale is in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream a couple of years before he got super famous. And you're like, oh, look at you, you incredibly young version of this person I'm familiar with. Uh, yeah, if you want to even go even babier with Christian Bale. He is also in Henry V as like the paid boy, which is also directed by Kenneth Branagh. Okay, another one that I suspect that we might come to odds with would be uh, Dogberry. I was actually excited when I found out that Michael Keaton was going to be Dogberry in, in in this film, and I was just really, really disappointed in this in his performance there. I mean, uh, Keanu Reeves just perpetually looks like he's smelling a wet fart in in his version, but. Michael Keaton, I, I understand what he's going for. He's like pretending to ride a horse like Monty Python on the Holy Grail. And he, he affects like a pirate accent while he's doing his dogberryisms, And I just couldn't get on board with it. No, I, I agree. I, I think, you know, Michael Keaton is entertaining, but I got to give it to Nathan Fillion as Dogberry. He was hilarious. Favorite part of the Whedon version. Oh, yeah, he crushes Dogberry, and I was expecting him to. Yeah, I, honestly, though, when I heard that, you know, there was going to be a Whedon version of Much Do Nothing, I thought he was going to be Benedict. I would have loved to see that. I think he would have been a pretty good Benedict, but yeah. I, I, I was thrilled that he was Dogberry. Oh, yeah, no, that was the part where I, I thought it was good. He's definitely the best. He kind of brings, you know, the comedy to it because, you know, Dogberry is the clown. He has some of the funniest pun-tastic dialogue or just, you know, malapropisms. Well, I think that Billion uh, in a lot of his roles, he plays like the cartoonish, exaggerated parody of the barrel-chested, traditional, strong-chinned action hero. He that's the face for it. <laughs> that's, that's definitely what he's doing when uh, Dr. Horrible, when he's Captain Hammer. Yeah, and... I did like Captain Hammer song. There you go. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> and, and he's basically playing a riff on that in Firefly. and mm-hmm. like, like him and Bruce Campbell both approach it from that direction. Have the chins. It's the chins. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he, he's basically doing that in, in his Dogberry and I, I, I laughed with every line he did. Oh, All yeah. of the dogberryisms, where he's saying the rhyme wrong word in place of the one mm-hmm. that he, he meant to, accidentally substituting redemption for per, uh, perdition and so forth. Yeah, you will be condemned to everlasting redemption for this. <laughs> then we're getting back to uh, Leonardo with uh, Richard Beers' uh, Leonardo in the Kenneth Branagh version, and I think he does a very nice job. He's mm-hmm. a He's a he's a handsome older gentleman who who sells the line with the uh, traditional Shakespearean fervor. Yeah, I I think that um, I always hate the scene where he's like throwing hero around, but once finally gets it into his head after being calmed down by Benedict, his brother, and the friar and Beatrice, he again seems to be very contrite, and I think that's kind of where you know the in the interpretation of. of how you interpret the treatment of Hero depends on how the characters react to it once they know that they're wrong. In the Whedon version, Leonardo is played by Clark Gregg, and I, I love Clark Gregg. I'm happy to see him in everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, uh, Anthony Head, who is um, another one of uh, Whedon's usual go-tos, was supposed to be Leonardo, but he had to bow out. But since Clark Cle- uh, Gregg was in Avengers as Agent Coulson, he was just already on call, and they brought him in. Mm-hmm. And um, out of everyone in the Whedon version of Much of Ado About Nothing, who was just kind of drunk at every given scene, Clark Gregg is the most drunk, and I'm <laughs> guessing that he, that he probably genuinely was. I mean, one of my favorite bits of, like, improvised staged comedy in it is when, you know, Leonardo is supposed to give Hero away to, to Claudio, and he's just kind of nodding off, and Hero just kind of has to elbow him, and he's like, oh, oh what? Oh, uh, I, I, I give you the, my, my daughter. <laughs> Yeah. However, that being said, when it gets to the part where he's angrily denouncing Hero, it's a bit more tonally jarring in the in, in the Brana version because you're like, "Oh, Clark Gregg, why are you being like that?" I I, I agree. I, I think that any time that you know the nice men yell at the woman, another man lied to them. I don't, I don't know. We can go into the whole like you should believe women, and then maybe like the how 
I personally, you know, that we look at that scene, it kind of gets down to when it comes to, you know, when something bad, if you're a woman or in a feminine, femme presenting person, something bad happens to you. Is your partner, is your male partner, are the men in your life going to believe you? Will they stand by your side? Which is why Benedict is the best male, you know, hero, male love interest in a Shakespeare play. Yeah, I mean, Benedict is at least willing to give Hero the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. He, he isn't just jumping on to the worthless slattern train, the very instance that the disreputable bastard son throws out accusations. Yeah, fucking snidely whiplash. <laughs> oh, are we going to talk about Claudio now? Or, or... Oh, yeah, Claudio. Hey. <laughs> All right, in the Brana version, he's played by uh, Robert Sean Leonard, who we brought up before. I'm not familiar with him in anything else. I He, he seems like just another pretty boy. Uh, he was. I never really watched House, but he played Wilson, and I also had the unfortunate uh, to watch <sighs> Dead Poet Society, which he plays Neil, the tragic hero in it. And that's probably one of his breakout roles besides this one. And again, I'm an English major and I hate the Dead Poet Society. I hate it so much. <laughs> he's in it yeah, and he's good in it. But uh, another movie that I hate as an English major, you know, Rest in peace, Robin Williams. I do not mean to offend, but I hate that movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I love Robin Williams as much as the next guy, but there are plenty of Robin Williams movies that I cannot sit through. Yeah, we have a whole podcast about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, in the Whedon version, Claudio is played by Franz Kranz, who, as uh, Rachel said before, I like his Claudio a little better because he's just a nasally whiny little weasel, which is my mental image of Claudio. Yeah, same here. Uh, But I think that if you want to stage Much Ado About Nothing and still have Hero and Claudio get back together at the end, you gotta trim it down. You gotta make him super repentant. They trimmed out, like, I mean... His one, like, racist line in the Brana version where he's like, I would not take her where she would, an Ethiop or something. That they kept in the Whedon version. They yeah. even cut to a black woman who's like, what the fuck did he just say? Yeah, yeah, she gives him a big old stink eye. They decided to, like, hang a lampshade on the line. I listened to somebody else talk about how uh, that plays into Joss Whedon's interesting approach to depicting race uh, and how he, he sometimes seems to have good intentions but frequently puts his foot in his mouth. She compared it to a scene in um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer where uh, Buffy is introduced to uh, images of the very first Slayer and it's like this ridiculous caricature of uh, a yeah. Haitian black person yep. and she I just makes it. fun of his dreadlocks and such and somewhat. <laughs> I know, I've seen that one. Like, Two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. And the only reason why I can never get into Buffy is that, and I know that I would only watch it for Giles because he's very handsome. With the actors out of the way, I suppose we should start talking about how these scenes are constructed and how they differ from each other. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most uh, obvious ones is getting back to the overhearing sequence, <laughs> yeah. which uh, in the Brana version is more or less played straight. Uh, they give their theatrical um, Shakespeare recitations of the line, but there is a bit more in terms of the fourth wall breaking. The actors look directly at the camera and their performances are even a bit more affected because they're reciting the lines for Beatrice mm-hmm. and Benedict's benefit. Yeah, it's like, uh, what did your daughter say? My daughter, my daughter. Oh, she's daughter. All right, let's just huddle and make him try to listen. I want to know what they're saying. <laughs> and they're doing this, oh, yes, she is madly in love with you him. Did say that your niece is in love with Senor Benedict? And he's just like, oh, oh. Yeah, and as I said before, in the Whedon version, it's played up as straight comedy. Yeah, uh, really <laughs> I, I, I really loved how that was staged. Just yeah. Benedict, like, crawling behind the screen door, and he's putting some twigs in, this, like, in front of his face in order to pretend that there's a bush there. I, know. I like that he's still like, trying later on in the middle scene where Benedict thinks that Beatrice is in love with him, but she's still acting like she doesn't care. And he's, like, trying to exercise in front of her. And he's like, how you doing? And he's, like, doing, like, blink squats the whole time. Yeah, and in the in the Brana version, uh, one thing that I noticed is that Brana in the editing room speeds up the footage slightly in order to put more attention on, on the physical acting and make it seem more exaggerated. 
Hmm, I didn't notice that. The watch the movie again. You know, getting back to the if I were a man monologue. Mm-hmm. I think that Acker's recitation of it is a bit more subdued. I think hers has like an undercurrent of menace. Whereas Emma Thompson is just wielding her lines like a hatchet and just throwing them at your face. Yeah, I personally like it when Beatrice gets angry. Because it's a very angry moment. You know, she's just watched um, her cousin get slut-shamed in front of their whole town, their whole community. Her life is ruined. Like, you know, we got all the double standards for that. And she, you know, Beatrice... Um, you know, she's a, you know, a privileged upper class woman, but she is still reliant upon her male relatives for her well-being. And she's just watched her cousin get slut shamed by people that she, you know, loves and respects. So I, I understand why she would be angry. That's how I've always thought the line works best. She's like crying her angry tears. She's ready to go and, you know, take that kitchen knife and stick it in Claudio's bag. Yeah, Emma Thompson goes full Shatner. Amy Acker's more of a Robert De Niro. I don't think she goes full Shatner. She goes full, like, rage. She rages, and I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> she loves it. Yeah, give me, give me the vengeance. I think both scenes just sort of highlight how Brana and uh, Whedon differ as directors. Because I wouldn't say that Brana is the most, like, overstated, distinct uh, director of all, but he does approach it as a filmmaker first and foremost like there are crane shots and he uses various forms of um you know lateral pans and the like and uh the the whole overhearing scene just ends with emma thompson just on a swing and 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 brana just playing in a fountain and it keeps dissolving from one to the other the theme is playing it's it's great Whereas with Whedon, he parks his camera in front and just lets the actors throw lines at each other, which is fine, especially on a hurried production like the one he did. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, that being said, he's not someone who frequently uses cinematography as a storytelling device. There's a famous Every Frame of Painting uh, video essay that compares Joss Whedon's Avengers to uh, Akira Kurosawa's The Seven Samurai, which is just mean. Because Kurosawa embodies someone who uses the camera as a storytelling device. Kurosawa is spinning in his grave. How dare they insult that man? I think it's being more unfair to Whedon because that's just not how he approaches visual storytelling at all. It's just, you know, the scene with like all uh, the Seven Samurai with the funeral sequence where there's just like fog and rain and all the actors are moving and the camera is moving in a way that puts attention to their facial acting and their and, and their physical movements. And then it's contrasted against the scene in the Avengers where, like, Nick Fury is trying to guilt the various Avengers into uh, confronting the alien invasion. And it's just a camera pointing at a character talking. And then the camera goes to another character who is talking. And it moves a little bit, but it doesn't contribute to the storytelling in any way. Mm, yeah, well, I'm sick of Marvel movies, so... <laughs> uh, yeah, that is... Basically, how much you do about nothing is also shot. The, the, the camera is there to frame the actors as they're talking. It doesn't really take a hand in the storytelling, not in the way that Brana does. Yeah, but you know what? For what Whedon did, what he had the time to do, it's a very good adaption. It deals with the um, the black and white, like an old timey screwball comedy. I feel like they could have, you know, gone a little bit more, you know, Catherine Hepburn, <laughs> but. Uh, I still think that it, it's good. You know, I, I like all the scenes where, you know, Benedict has to sleep in, like, the little girl's room because this is where they're staying. And he's just, you know, lying on the bed and he's looking at the picture of Beatrice. Like, good freaking nerd. It's just really sweet. <laughs> I love the Joss Whedon version of Much Ado About Nothing. It's actually a personal favorite of mine. But nobody loves this movie because of its camera work. Yeah, nope. All right, uh, another thing I wanted to touch upon was the music. The Kenneth Branagh one has a very traditional orchestral version by Patrick Doyle, which is very brassy and has operatic leitmotifs, the kind of thing that you typically think of when you think of film music. Mm-hmm. And, it, and, and it's very good, and it's very pronounced, uh, especially in the opening sequence, oh, where yeah. everybody's getting ready for Don Pedro and his entourage to come yeah, in. Yeah, and, and they're, all the men are on the horses, and they're like, yeah, on their fists. 
in the air, and then you can see that Don John is the bad guy because he has black lapels instead of blue. And yeah, <laughs> a, 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 a couple of buttons in his shirt are undone, and mm -hmm. that's the way it is in every scene. And Rachel sighs contentedly. <laughs> yeah, well, and you never buy candy. I'd appreciate it. <laughs> And all the women are dressing and undressing, and you see quite a few butt cheeks. Oh, yeah, so many butt cheeks. <laughs> and, and you just see major key horn section just going, burr, burr, butt cheeks! <laughs> very, it's very epic. I think it's one of the ways that you can, you know, use the soundtrack to make, you know, something that is, relatively speaking, ordinary, special, and amazing. Yeah, it's epic in a very jaunty way. Oh, yeah. However, once again, getting back to the rushed aspect of the produ production of the Whedon version, Whedon uh, composed the score himself. It is very minimal. Uh, some scenes are just a piano playing one note. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the uh, Whedon version in a very long time, but uh, yeah, I don't really remember the soundtrack in the same way. One bit that uh, the films contrast quite a bit is the use of Sigh No More, the Shakespeare song in it. Mm -hmm. uh, in the uh, Branagh version, it is recited at the beginning by Emma Thompson in the appropriate scene in the play, and then, at, and then again at the very end. Mm -hmm. In the uh, Whedon film, it is uh, rewritten as a jazz standard, but uh, there are lots of bent notes in the um, in, in the strings that give it a, a bit of a country vibe. This was done by uh, his brother Jed Whedon and uh, the singer uh, Marissa uh, Tancheron. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. And once again, they perform it like live during the masquerade scene, and I love that version of Sigh No More. I I listen to it on its own like all, right, all the time. Look, I might have looked that up because I really don't remember because I only yeah I only watched the Whedon version once, but I remember it really well. So. I, yeah, whenever I think of the Whedon film, the 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 opening chords of the that version of Sigh No More just immediately come to mind, and it always makes me smile I, I i adore it to no end with uh that out of the way i think i've covered everything that i wanted to discuss about this were there uh, any notes that you wanted to bring up that uh, we haven't gotten around to yet hmm. I, I guess that i know this is like a film analysis podcast but i just kind of wanted to talk for a moment about just some of the other ways that um people have adapted much to do about nothing just to kind of show how you know very versatile the text of shakespeare is there was a production that oh, I really wish I could have seen a few years ago in uh, London that had James Earl Jones and uh, Vanessa Redgrave as Beatrice and Benedict, where it's that, instead of having them as, you know, young lovers, they're an older couple who spent their entire lives just kind of combating with each other. And that instead of, you know, a very sisterly relationship between their, you know, other counterparts, Hero and Claudio, it's much more maternal and paternal. And I, I don't know, I think that that adds like a little bit of, you know, gravitas to it by yeah. having them as an older couple. Yeah, that sounds like a fantastic spin on it. Uh, you, you've brought this up to me before. And actually, before starting working on the syllabus for this episode, I tried to like, find like scenes of it on youtube or through google or something and yeah i couldn't come across anything i don't know i mean somebody must have filmed a version of it there is also probably other than the brana version and maybe even more so than the whedon version the other uh, most well-known production of much ado about nothing is a version that has uh, david Tennant and Catherine tate as the two leads and they kind of place it in the 80s at like a beach resort you know it's supposed to be like implied to be post Falklands war and david Tennant uses his natural scottish accent for it and just the scene where uh benedict is describing his ideal woman he's like and her hair shall be red now the color god wills it because if you don't know who Catherine tate is she's very famous for having flaming red hair and just everyone in the audience just loses it yeah that sounds adorable yeah it is it's very good <laughs> but um i don't know it's my favorite shakespeare play i mean i've had ideas of my own as to how i would adapt it um i would make it take place in the 60s and have beatrice be you know like an anti-war protester and benedict and company they're all coming back from vietnam so you can kind of play into you know second wave feminism, you know, your mileage may vary on that. And, you know, just the way the cultural shifts that are happening in the late 60s, early 70s. 
But yeah, that's it. It's my favorite play. I'm glad I got to talk about this one with you. We should pick another play adaptions to do for another episode. Oh, yeah, I, I have a ton of ideas for, like, movie versus movie um, podcasts. This is definitely the first one I wanted to do, but, you know, I was also thinking of uh, contrasting the two versions of Murder on the Orient Express that, that, that made it to film. Before Brana! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, yeah, just t- making another Brana face-off. Or, uh, I mean, you uh, let me the um, uh, the Lawrence Fishburne version of Othello, I... I was thinking of comparing that to the Orson Welles version or maybe the uh, Blackface or Lawrence Olivier version, depending on how mean I'm feeling. Yeah, I mean, I think that the other adaption, which I really wish was filmed, was the Patrick Stewart version of Othello, which to get around, like, the inherent racism of casting a white man as Othello, he's the only white actor in this play. Everyone else is black. And... You know, full disclosure, Ryan and I are both very white people, so we're not the best to be, you know, passing judgment on that. But I guess it just goes to show you that we're going to be adapting Shakespeare plays in all sorts of, you know, wacky ways until the sun explodes. Yeah, that is something that uh, I've been I, 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 I've been grappling with internally is that I don't want to talk about, you know, movies with a strong African-American presence with white people. Just have it a, be a panel on diversity with exclusively white people because that's dickish. But I don't want to approach my black friends and be like, hey, do this black movie with me because you're black. <laughs> I, know. I, I feel like it would tokenize them. Yeah. I think it's our duty to acknowledge that these issues exist and also to acknowledge that we are not the best people to be talking about it. We know it's wrong, but don't ask us to teach you because you're going to be learning from other people. So, hey, uh, black friends of mine who are listening to this, I would love to do Black Dynamite or Shaft with you if you're cool with that. But if you want to do a movie that isn't necessarily African-American centric, I am also fine with doing that for you. (laughs) Yes. All right, yeah. Send us your recommendations. It'll be kind of fun. All right, well, that's it for me. That is also it for me. Thank you for listening, everybody. (laughs) Bye.